Please remain standing for our scripture lesson. This morning we continue in 1 John. We'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Chapter 5, 6 through 9. This is the Word of God. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this, test, this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Amen. You may be seated, dear saints. We enter a somewhat challenging, difficult passage today on several fronts, and we're going to um, talk about that. But more importantly, we're going to feast on Jesus in the Word and then in the sacrament as well. But the other means of prayer is prayer, or a means of grace is prayer, so let's pray now. Father, we thank you that all three of those uh, special, beautiful, ordinary means of grace that you give to your church on Sundays in the New Covenant are available to us today, the sacrament, preaching, prayer. Now grant us grace as we look into this text. May we see Jesus there high and lifted up, and may we feast on him through our hearts, our ears, faith coming by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. So I know some of you employ the King James Version or the New King James Version, and if you were reading along with us while Elder Kenny was reading the text out of the ESV, you notice that some of the words that are in your versions, verses 7b and 8a, were not read a few moments ago by Ken, and they also won't be included in the preaching context today either. Uh, very briefly, this is one of those manuscript issues in the New Testament. It's probably the second most significant one. The first being the ending of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16. And then this one, these words that are found in, as I say, the Textus Receptus manuscript, uh, which is from whence the King James, New King James draws its, its text. Now, it is an interesting history. I believe that Jerome in the 5th century may have included it in his Vulgate, I did check out John Calvin, and he acknowledges that he's not certain about those words. He tends to think maybe they should be included. But the really interesting part here, and I don't want to make too much of this, but I think we need to address it up front, is simply the fact that none of the ancient Greek manuscripts from whence we derive our New Testament as we collate them together, and the accuracy is remarkable, Uh, None of them include those words. Now, in the 16th century, Erasmus, who is a great language scholar, a contemporary of, of Luther, not exactly held in highest esteem by Luther as far as his theology, but appreciated his ability in languages, 
was asked to do some translation, and he was not going to include these because no Greek manuscript had it. So somebody produced a 16th century Greek manuscript, gave it to Erasmus, and he said, okay, and he put it in his his translation. That's the truth. So those words, uh, I can talk to you about those. They're good words. The reality is that the text we do have before us, whether those words are included or not, is more than sufficient to feed us a full and gracious meal of Jesus today and to give us all the good things that we need on this Lord's Day. So, because of this, and because Christ is perfectly witnessed by the Holy Gospel to us and by the three persons of the Holy Trinity to us, let us make it our goal this Lord's Day to believe God's inviolable testimony concerning his Son. Toward that end, we're going to be looking at 1 John 5, 6 through 9. As I said, an interesting text. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. The doctrine. The Spirit, the water, and the blood testify to the reality of Christ's humanity and victory. Now, I am of the opinion that the view that understands water and blood in today's text is referring to John's chronicling of Christ's death on the cross, as per John 19.34, which Elder Ken read as the first verse in the call to worship today, and we're going to reference it later a couple of times and, and quote it. Now, I think that is the soundest interpretation of these uh, rather challenging words that we find in today's scripture lesson. So I'm going to take the water and the blood as coming from that context. Now having said that, we also want to be very gracious with the other two main views of this. And if you have some good study Bibles, I know for a fact that those study Bibles are going to hold the other views. I checked it out. The Reformation Study Bible holds the view I'm going to propose today. But the ESV, NIV, very excellent study Bible does not. And the ESV does not either. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. And we'll be gracious with those other two views as well. The Spirit then would testify to Christ's flesh's death and particularly to his coming back to life in his resurrection from the dead. And therefore, this morning, let us agree that the Spirit, the water, and the blood testify to the reality of Christ's humanity and victory. First, Jesus' baptism slash crucifixion and the two sacraments may be inferred in these verses, I-N-F-E-R-R-E-D, which children means to be hinted at. And these are the aforementioned two other perspectives on how to interpret the water and the blood. The one that says water refers to Christ's baptism and the blood speaks of his crucifixion. That's probably the most popular other view. And the second one is that water speaks of the baptism of all Christians in the church and blood refers to the church's practice of the Lord's Supper. That's a subordinately held view. Now, this is a classic case of where exegesis, or the work in the text before us itself, and systematic theology 
which is the putting together, the collating of the doctrines of the Bible into a cohesive whole, comes into play. Exegesis and systematic theology. Now, in this particular instance, we're going to let exegesis drive the bus, but systematic theology gets to ride along, okay? And sometimes that's a good way to go, and usually it is. Now, having said that, no one should ever deny that in the Bible, water denotes baptism often, nor that blood connotes death or crucifixion a lot of times. But there is good rationale for why Jesus' baptism slash crucifixion and the two sacraments may be inferred in these verses, but the Johannine context favors Christ's real death and bodily resurrection. And we use the word Johannine, we're talking about John's writings. So keep in mind two important contextual considerations. First of all, John, in writing 1 John, which I believe he probably wrote before 70 AD, was combating docetic Gnostics in this epistle. And these heretics denied that Jesus Christ was truly human, he just appeared to be, and that he actually died and rose again because they thought that no God-man could die in the body. Secondly, let us recall as best as we're able that the Gospel of John, interestingly, and I think it was probably written after 70 AD, does make no reference, actually, to the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, which you can read about in the Synoptic Gospels. It doesn't mention it. I I think because John was familiar with the Synoptics and felt it wasn't necessary, and under the Holy Spirit's influence and inspiration, didn't put it in his Gospel. On top of that, it's also true, interestingly enough, that the Gospel of John does not relate to us the institution of the Lord's Supper, the last Passover, the night before Christ would die. And all three of the Synoptic Gospels do that a lot and tell us about it. So those two are not found. And also, dear, it's very important. John's Gospel does, in the aforementioned John 19.34, especially highlight the blood and water aspect of Jesus' death on the cross as the blood and the water came out of our glorious Redeemer's side. As well, the Johannine Gospel makes a whole lot of the wounds that were found on the blessed Messiah's resurrected body, as in the verses listed on your outline, John 20, 20, and verses 25 through 27. Still, again, having said that, in this doctrinal section where we are right now, None of us should ever deny the importance of the sacraments based on the fact that, for instance, even in the famous John chapter 6, which I think is the greatest chapter ever, and we often quote it at the Lord's Supper, even John chapter 6 and the statements about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood was not initially, at least, in direct reference to the institution of the Lord's Supper even though obviously the supper is included in that by inference. So there's some doctrine, hopefully give you a little context and background if um, you've been wondering about your text. And now let's do 
the exegesis in the text that we have before us, verses 6 through 9 of 1 John chapter 5, and marvel at the glorious gospel in simple yet profound terms. And this is almost a courtroom scene here in the four verses of our lesson for today. And if we include next week's text, Lord willing, which includes verse 11, the three related English words, testify, testifies, and testimony, are employed a startling seven times in but six verses. So this reminds us, dears, of the blessed fact that the gospel in Christ's blood and resurrection is a forensic legal proclamation of imputed justification upon the redeemed elect of God who have received the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit whereby the atonement of Christ has been applied to them. It's all of grace, all of God, and it's not at all of works or law or self. This is a glorious gospel, and so let us now thoroughly enjoy the glorious gospel in simple yet profound terms. First, Jesus Christ really died on the cross. Verse 6a. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, I think the twice-cited John 19.34 should be quoted here again. And so this is what the evangelist testified to seeing, that, quote, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, later on in history, and not that many years ago, I think, medical experts would tell us that this is conclusive evidence of the decease or death of our glorious Messiah's body, that the water and the blood came out. And they could tell you how that happens and from whence it is in the body and all of that. So why is this death of Jesus so monumentally significant? Well, for a lot of amazing reasons. It's all part and parcel of the gospel promises from the Old Covenant. All those lambs and sheep and goats that were sacrificed, all pointing to the Lamb of God. And by dying, Jesus took upon himself our deserved death, that we had coming to us. So he substitutes for us. He is the atoning sacrifice for us. He is the propitiation for our sins. This death was absolutely monumental. And by dying in the body, Jesus Christ then could and would rise from the dead in the body, the first fruits of the resurrection, which he is today, in the human body in heaven the God-man, yet bearing the marks of crucifixion. As we know from the text in the gospel after his resurrection. This rising from the dead would finally and forever seal for the justified, redeemed, elect saints of the church our standing before the holy God. Because unless we're perfect, we cannot stand before the holy God And the perfect one, whose blood was shed for us, who we will celebrate in that sacrament today, has provided us the clothing, the righteous clothing, clean clothes, 
of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us and atoned for us completely and absolutely. This may be why John stresses the water and the blood so much, although I admit that it does seem to be not that easily uh, discerned, if you will. Now, to put it in context, imagine you're the apostle in the 60s AD. You're writing this general letter to small churches like ours in, in near Ephesus, probably, where we think John was. And he writes this letter, and he's concerned that his Christian church readers receiving this letter may be being harassed by the docetic Gnostics, and they needed to be doubly confirmed in and comforted by the actual bodily, physical, biological, and atoning death of the Son of God on their behalf. Maybe they were tempted to think that, well, maybe the Gnostics really have a point. You know, aren't they kind of super spiritual? And maybe it really wasn't the body of Christ. And this seems to drive it home very strongly. For while dying there on the cross, Jesus Christ bore all the sins of all the elect church of all time. Every single saint regenerated by the Holy Spirit, signed and sealed in the covenant of grace in the church, in the new covenant by baptism, has that assurance that their sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. This is a glorious gospel. Jesus Christ really died on the cross. And I bet you figured this one out, really. Jesus Christ really rose from the grave, verses 6b through 8. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, in the Old Covenant, you might have wondered, why did Pastor Mark have Elder Ken read that passage in Deuteronomy 7 this morning about the three or two witnesses and people dying and things like that? It seems a little odd. Well, that's why, because in the Old Covenant, you had to have two or three witnesses And here we have the three witnesses all agreeing, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, I do believe that these two and a half verses really do have reference to the the resurrection of Jesus. And I base this conviction on Johannine and Pauline texts, and we're going to reference them in a moment. First of all, with respect to John's writings, I would present to you John 20, 27b, where the risen Christ appears before, on a Sunday, the once doubting Thomas. And he encourages Thomas to put his, Thomas's hand in his side and place it there to prove to Thomas that he really did die and rise again. He was risen from the dead. And this phrase, of course, is in resurrection affirming wound out of which the water and the blood had flowed. So the, the resurrection affirming wound was there. He really died, but he really rose again. So that's the blood and the water. And then as far as the spirit goes, the spirit testifies to the historical and redemptive fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead. 
And that's prominent in many of John's writings, as for instance in this very book, 1 John 4.13. And it's also corroborated by the Apostle Paul and all the other biblical writers for that matter, but I'll cite Paul from Romans 1.4 where we read these words. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So, dears, in the Bible, there are these all-consuming, all-encompassing triads, and they all agree. Think of these three with me, ironically, the big three. Three triads. First of all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the Great Commission text. Baptize the nations, the church is told to do, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some of you were around for the First Corinthians series. How about First Corinthians thirteen thirteen, where we read about faith, hope, and love. These three, and the greatest of these is love. And then here in First John five eight, we have the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, all three of these divine triads direct us to the person of the death of and the resurrection of the Son of God, the one to whom everything is pointed, all of creation was made through him, all things come around him and direct us to him, the one and only God-man mediator between the holy God and us sinful humans, First Timothy 2.5. Jesus Christ really died on the cross, really rose from the grave. And finally, Jesus Christ really fulfilled all his Father's will, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. So especially in John's Gospel and John's writings, the testimony of God, particularly God the Father, is highlighted, and this verse 9 is no exception here in 1 John 5. Now here in context, I think that the accent is on the absolutely completed, satisfactory, and perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, so as to once and for all secure for us his church, our full, true, and free atonement and salvation, and to confirm to us our election and our being chosen by God and being the recipients, the passive recipients, of the enormous grace of God to us, even though we would never have sought it out on ourselves. We're the ones who benefit from the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. Now, later in this very same paragraph here in 1 John chapter 5, at verses 11 and 12, we see the result of this being pristinely and subjectively confirmed in our hearts. In other words, God wants to drive this home to you, saints, so that you know who you are in Christ Jesus and what you have received, that you are assured of your life. I'm quoting Verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very clear. 
very definite. Also, the Holy Spirit, through John, makes a powerful argument from the lesser to the greater here, where he says, if we do indeed receive the testimony of men, human beings, and we may do that legitimately, as per verse 9a, then we may definitely, and without any reservation whatsoever, any hesitancy, receive the greater testimony of God, who is born witness concerning his beloved Son. As always, dears, let's do some application this morning and grasp why the Spirit, the water, and the blood all necessarily testify to our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, why could we not really leave out or exclude any one of these, the Spirit, the water, or the blood? Well, I think the answer to that question is what we're going to seek to endeavor to lock down as we do this application this morning, even right now. So let's look at why the Spirit, the water, and the blood all necessarily testify to our Lord Jesus Christ. First, because without the Redeemer's dead flesh, we could never live. Now, providentially and sovereignly and amazingly, just recently I had been reading John Calvin's commentary on Gospel of John, and I read all that he had to say about chapter 6, because I love that chapter so much. And while doing that, this concept of the Savior's dead flesh came alive to me in a way that it had never done before. I realized in reading John Calvin that we had to have Christ's flesh in order to live. But that flesh had to die because we were dead in trespasses and sins. That flesh had to die to sacrifice and substitute for us. And that dead human flesh then had to come back to life. And the way that happened was by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus' body, dead body, back to life on that first Easter Sunday morning in order for us to have any vivifying or life-giving benefits from Christ's atonement. So the dead flesh had to be made alive. Isn't that interesting? We receive this greatest benefit in Christ in two basic forms. First, in our regeneration, whereby and wherein we fully possess Jesus Christ in and by the Spirit of God. And, and that's really what John chapter 6 is starting with. It's just, if we have Jesus Christ, we eat his flesh, we drink his blood... We are consumed with him. He is our whole life. And we consume him by faith. And two, in our covenant church life, whereby we are again every Lord's Day, through the preaching of the gospel and through the administration of the Lord's Supper, given the Lord Jesus Christ in these important ways so that we have the strength and energy to go on in this world because we can't make it without him every Lord's Day. We absolutely have to be fed him or we would starve to death. And we can read about this in Paul's writings of 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 26. So... When many of us, Lord willing, take the Lord's Supper here this morning, let us recognize that the bread and the wine communicate the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ to us in the principal sense that his flesh and blood were essential to our life, our salvation. 
And Christ's virtue, as we are seated with him in heaven, is transmitted to us, the virtue of Christ's body and blood, transmitted to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we will now see. So why the Spirit, the water, and the blood all all necessarily testify to our Lord Jesus Christ? Because without the Redeemer's dead flesh, we can never live. And without the Spirit's raising the Savior from the tomb, we possess no justification. So Christ's cross and his resurrection sweetly comply with each other. They are perfectly corresponding to one another. Without Jesus' crucifixion, there's no remission of sins. And without his resurrection, there's no victory, there's no validation, there's no justification of us before the Holy God. But in Jesus Christ, dead and raised, we have all of this glory and blessing. How is it apprehended by us? I'm going to close with the words of the Apostle Paul, great words that will tell us how this is apprehended by us and by any other human beings that we know, all of whom need Jesus Christ to have any life. They have no life outside of him. Listen to the words of Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Beloved, the Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify to our Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Let us, the Church of God, the beneficiaries of this unspeakable, enormous blessing and benefit, Praise and thank God for the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Let's pray. Father, we do that now. We thank you and bless you for the Spirit, the water, and the blood. We thank you that you have provided us everything we need in Christ Jesus, that the water and the blood came from his dead flesh, and yet the Spirit brought him back to life. He bore our deadness. And we have been risen with him in his resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you now and bless you as we take the supper with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.